So uh, we're moving into fall, whether you're ready for it or not. So uh, appreciate everybody that uh, contributes to just the little things around the building that uh, uh, need to be done, and uh, they don't uh, necessarily receive recognition for it. But uh, help keep us all uh, focused on what we're what we're doing here each week. Uh, last week, we talked about faith and uh, different traits of faith. And one of those was leaving a legacy of faith. That it's something that is passed on from ourselves to the next generation. And uh, we looked at Moses and Joshua as examples of that. And then Joshua, at the end of his book, passes it on to the elders of the tribes that we're going to be leading the people of Israel. So we see this passing on of faith from one generation to the next. And so now as we, for the next few weeks, work our way through First and Second Timothy, what we're really seeing here is this same thing, a transmission of faith, a legacy of faith from Paul to Timothy, particularly when we get to 2 Timothy, we realize that Paul, as he writes, is at the end of his life, and uh, he wants to leave final words, if you will, to Timothy, much like Moses and Joshua did. 1 Timothy is a little different. It's written by Paul to his friend and apprentice, uh, Timothy, and, and Timothy uh, was somebody who traveled with Paul. And on this occasion, he has been sent uh, by Paul to the city of Ephesus. Uh, Paul had already been there. He'd planted a church there. He'd spent two years uh, working with the church in Ephesus. He, he stayed there longer than he did with any other church that we know of. It was a church that was uh, precious to him. He knew the individuals that were involved. Um, we, we, we get a sense of this because he's written them the letter, uh, Ephesians, to that church. He sent Timothy there. And, and then as soon as he sends Timothy there, he says, oh, and let me send you a letter as well. Um, and, and so he's really concerned about what is happening in this church that means so much to him. Although the letters are written to an individual, to Timothy, it doesn't mean that the intended audience is only Timothy. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that Timothy got the letter in the mail and went into his room, uh, read it, and then stuffed it in his diary, and in his journal, you know, so that nobody else would see it. Rather, the way it would have been sent is it would have been sent by messenger. And, and the messenger would have come to the church and would have said, hey church, Paul sends a letter to Timothy. Now I'm going to read it to everyone. Okay. So, um, not quite the way our mail system works, but it would have been read to the assembly. And one of the ways we get a sense of this, that this is how it worked, is because it's preserved for us. Right? How is it that it's in our Bible? Well, because it didn't stop with Timothy. It was known to the church, and then, even from the church in Ephesus, it got passed on to other churches. 
Um, other people knew about it. Other people found value in it. They, they stuck it in a collection of inspired writings, a collection of letters of Paul. And it became a, a letter of teaching that the entire church can benefit from. And so um, w- one of the reasons, one of the benefits for it being read to the entire church was that Paul had sent Timothy, a, a person uh, quite a bit younger than himself apparently, uh, to come to this church. And there were people in the church in Ephesus who'd perhaps been um, leaders in the synagogue and had left the synagogue and become Christians, but they were accustomed to receiving a lot of respect. They knew the law. They were teachers in the synagogue. They, they were experts or, or looked to for teaching on God's Word, uh, the Old Testament. And, and so now this young guy who doesn't have a whole lot of um, experience in the Old Testament compared to those who've, who've been leaders in the synagogue, uh, is coming to tell them to fix them, to solve res- uh, disputes in the church. And, and he's going to say, this is what we need to do. And, and, you know, those of us that are a little bit older, we know how much we love receiving advice from people younger than ourselves, right? And, and uh, yeah, unless it has to do with how to program our TV or our phone, right? We love that advice, but anything else, well, you just wait until you've got a few more miles on those wheels of yours, right? And and so Paul sends this letter and he says, Timothy, this is what you're to do. Go in there and bang some heads. And the church needs to hear that, that Timothy is operating with apostolic authority and approval. That he is functioning as a mouthpiece of Paul and therefore should be treated and respected as Paul himself would be. So... It's a good thing that this personal letter is read to the church. That's in the immediate context. In the bigger context, the advice that Paul gives is something that can be used by leaders in in churches anywhere. You know, it's going to be applicable in many different situations. And, and, And so since it's read to the church as a whole, though, we need to understand it's beneficial to everybody, not just to the leaders. Uh, Because if the church as a whole needs to understand what we're working towards. Why are we doing this? Why are we taking this approach? And so uh, that's why we we all spend time reading this letter. It's not just something to be discussed in an elders and deacons meeting. So we're going to spend the next few weeks in these letters. Paul we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you can go ahead and, and turn there. We're going to spend our entire time in this chapter. Um, Paul has sent Timothy there because he's aware of false teachings. Okay? Um, in verse 3, so verses 1 and 2 are really the greeting. And then in verse 3 he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, so when we left, stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Okay? So this is the problem right off the bat 
The problem is that there are people who are teachers who are teaching falsehoods. And Timothy is to command them to stop. That seems simple enough, right? Just walk into the room and say, stop teaching that. And everyone go, okay, yeah, sure. It's going to be a battle zone, I expect. Um, not only are the false doctrines being taught, they're causing conflict in the church. If you come down towards the end of verse 4, he says, such things promote controversial speculation. Okay, so there's controversy that's taking place in the church. And so we need to understand as we go through the letter, this is the context. There's false teaching and there's conflict or controversy taking place. So everything that is said is attempting to resolve this situation. Okay? Uh, is what we're dealing with. As we read through chapter 1, we're going to see this contrast between these false teachings and healthy teaching. Um, sometimes it's called sound doctrine. Okay? Um, but, but sound doctrine is another way of saying healthy teaching. One of the things that I find really interesting is uh, a lot of times you look at um, ad advertisements. If you get the Christian Chronicle, you probably don't look at these, uh, and I don't either, but I've seen them from time to time where they have um, advertising for positions vacant for ministers. You know one of the things they almost always say in their advertising? They want somebody that's a sound Bible teacher. Right? It's like, oh, well, that's, that's a... Starting point, I suppose. No false teachers need to apply. Um, it, it's not a particularly helpful uh, description because everybody thinks that what we're teaching is sound and what the other person has is, is false. And so we, we need to dig into this a little bit further. But there, Paul provides this contrast between what is false and I, I really like the word healthy. That I, I think sound is a King James Version, and it means healthy. Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll go with, with that. So the problems um, that Paul uses, he uses different words to describe these false teachings. He says these people that are doing the teaching, they're devoted to myths, to endless genealogies, to controversial speculation, to meaningless talk, and we see a little further down that they're teaching the law. Okay? So they're, they're not just inventing things, but they're finding things in the law, in the Old Testament, and they're sort of having these big discussions, these big debates, and they're pulling people away. We don't really know the details of the myths and genealogies that were mentioned there. Perhaps these people were obsessed over something or in Genesis. There's a lot of genealogies in Genesis. Maybe it was about tracing people's heritage back to Abraham or, you know, we, we just don't know. Uh, the problem with these teachings becomes evident in the behavior of the church because it causes controversies and divisions. 
And, and sometimes we can be right, but the way that we're right makes us wrong. And, and, and Paul really, I mean, I think he says that their teaching is wrong, but not only is their teaching wrong, the way they're teaching or the outcome of their teaching demonstrates that they're wrong because of the controversies that are taking place. And, and look how this contrasts then with his description of healthy. And we see this in, um, well, at the end of verse 4, it says that, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Okay. And then it continues. The goal of this command, this faith, this God's work, is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, some have departed from this and have turned to meaningless talk. So we have this contrast set up. This is what God wants. God wants love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And over here we have this group of teachers who are engaged in meaningless talk. Okay? So this is our, our first contrast between what's, what's going on. In verse 7, we discover that the teachers want to teach the law. They want to be teachers of the law. So, again, that's part of the problem. But they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Okay? Confidence doesn't have anything to do with correctness. Right? There's a lot of us that can be confidently wrong about things. Okay? And, uh, and so Paul is just being pretty clear about that. He says, these guys want to be teachers, but it's just as they're wrong. And uh, they need, need to be corrected. So when we see that they're teachers of the law, that could mean a few different things. Uh, the word law could be a reference to everything in Judaism that is before Jesus. Okay. The word law, uh, it could mean just the Torah. The Jews spoke about the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. And the law was the first five books, the, the Torah of the, the Old Testament, uh, and the rest of it was the prophets. So it could just be the first five books. It could even... Um, and, and we'll see in a moment how Paul focuses in, specifically be pointing to a part of the law, uh, maybe even the, the Ten Commandments. But I want you to notice what verse 8 says before we, before we go on. Because I think sometimes as Christians, we hear the word law and we think of it as a negative. And so notice what Paul says here. He says, the law is good if one uses it properly. So Paul is not looking at the Old Testament or any part of the Old Testament and saying it's bad. Right? He says it's good. He doesn't say ignore it. doesn't say throw it away. He says the law is good if you use it properly. That's like anything. Your lawnmower is good unless you try to trim hedges with it. 
<laughs> Likewise, your hedge trimmers are good unless you try to cut the lawn with it. And, and so if, they, if it's used properly, the law is good. But then Paul continues on and he points out how the law is being used improperly. The main emphasis of the law, and not the only, but the main emphasis of the law, is telling us what not to do. So think about just our laws here in this, in this country. Okay? The speed limit puts a limit on how fast you can drive. There are other laws. Don't steal. Right? And we'll have great big books that define stealing. Okay? Um, don't harm people. Don't assault people. Don't, right? There are very few laws that tell us to do something. They'll tell us to pay our taxes. <laughs> but, but besides that, there are very few laws that tell us to do something. Okay. Mostly, we live our lives, if we live our lives inside the boundaries of our law, then we have no reason, theoretically, to be concerned about the legal authorities in the country. And we've got a lot of freedom for what we do. Do we stay home? Do we go out? There's you know, do we exercise? Do we not exercise? How much television do we like? There's all sorts of things that, that we can have this freedom for. But the law puts some boundaries on us, some limits. And the, the biblical law does the same thing. There, there are commands, go to the temple, how to worship, things to do, okay? Uh, certainly. But the majority of it is telling us of things not to do. Um, and, and so the law's purpose is to establish boundaries, describing places that we shouldn't go, the behaviors that we should avoid. Um, and so in verses 9 and 10, we see this, um, a list of sins, a list of boundaries. And I want you to just notice how it compares to the Ten Commandments. First one is honor your parents. And what Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, this is who the law applies to. Let me give you some examples of who the law applies to. He's writing to the church, remember? So these people, for the most part, aren't in the church. He says the law is applying to those who kill their parents. That's a little extreme, but it's the extreme uh, end of not honoring your parents. Uh, he says the law applies for murderers. Commandment number six says don't murder. Um, don't commit adultery. Paul says sexual immorality is wrong. Whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, that those relationships outside of marriage are, um, fall under this command of don't commit adultery. He says don't steal. And, and then in the commandments, and, and what greater theft is there than to take the freedom of a person and sell them as a, a slave? And he says... Slave dealing, trading is, is wrong. And, and so he's coming down here and, and, and then don't covet is kind of a catch-all. Right? Don't, want, don't even want anything. Where's your heart? Don't want anything that doesn't belong to you because that'll get you in trouble. 
And Paul at the end says, and anything else that's against healthy teaching. So Paul is saying these are the boundaries, right, that, that we see, and these laws apply to these people. But that's not who we are as a church. In a sense, it creates boundaries on the church. And so I want to make sure that we don't skip over this point. Because it would be easy for us to look at this passage and say Paul's upset about some Jewish teaching in the first church. I mean, that happened all the time through the New Testament, right? Paul's upset about the Jewish teaching in the church. There's a lot of disputes about that, whether it be circumcision or the Sabbath or different things. There were lots of conflict about that. Um, and, and so it's not really relevant to me because I'm not telling anyone to keep the Old Testament law. I can just skip over this. But what this, actually, what this passage actually does is contrast the focus on the thou shalt nots with the message of the gospel. Love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I think it's one of the great traps that churches fall into. That we want to continue to define people or define their faith and faithfulness by how well they observe the thou shalt not. Right? And, and, and so we, we want to regulate. We want to say, oh look, here's the boundaries and you're pushing those boundaries or you're stepping over those boundaries. But I want to say the gospel is all about the positive commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor. And, and churches, I've never been in a church that's made as big a deal about how you love your neighbors, that holds people accountable for loving our neighbors the same way they do for saying you're loving your neighbor too much and too intimately. And, and, and so we're quite happy to let people skate by with zero love for their neighbor. But they've punched their ticket to eternity because they were baptized in their church on Sunday and they're not going outside the boundaries. And Paul is saying to these teachers here, these false teachers, he's saying, you're focused on these thou shalt nots, you're focused on myths, you're focused on genealogies, you're focusing on all of them. He says, the purpose of the commands is love with a pure heart, with faith. And, and so I think it's real easy for us to get mixed up here. In, in fact, even as I was preparing this lesson, I was looking at the list of, of, of sins there. right? And maybe some of you have some questions about those. And, and I'm looking at that and I'm like, I'm wanting to, to define them. And I'm wondering, oh, I wonder what that Greek word is. Oh, I wonder this or about that. I wonder exactly what it means or what it covers. And I realized that what I was getting sucked into was doing exactly what the passage was telling me not to do. Right? Don't spend your time. I mean, there's a place for it. But, but it's saying, don't spend your time on these you know, details here. Don't, don't spend your time on defining what the boundaries are and defining what's wrong. He says, rather, the purpose of the commands 
His love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And, and so even as I'm writing this, I'm spending more time on saying, what are those sins, rather than what does a pure heart look like? How can we cultivate this pure heart? How can we have this pure heart that's the goal of the command? How can we have this good conscience that's the goal of the command? How can we have this sincere faith that's the goal of the command? And instead, I'm out there on the boundary saying, oh, I wonder what that word means. Because I want to make sure we're not doing that. We're describing that. And so I think we, we need to be very careful about how we approach these passages. And so I want to put up for you in verses 12 through 14 that were read for us earlier. I thank, notice the key words there, okay? I've tried to make them easy for you to see. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, says Paul, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When Paul says, tell me about the gospel, or let me tell you about the gospel, notice the words that he uses. Yeah, he, he's able to describe what he did wrong, and that's important because we can't go from what, we, from what God hates to what God loves unless we understand the difference. But that's not where he spends his time. He says, this is who he was, but look what God did for me. Showed me mercy, grace, faith, love, Christ Jesus. That's his focus. And do you see how different this gospel message, this healthy teaching is compared to those who are focused on the law? Nothing here makes those sins okay. So don't hear me saying that. But we need to ask, where is our focus? Paul tells Timothy and the church in Ephesus, they're focusing on the wrong things. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into that same trap. In Bible class several weeks ago, uh, John laid out and there was considerable discussion around the idea of which teachings are commands and which are opinions. How do we decide if a topic is essential or is an opinion? How do we decide if it's a command or if it's an, a myth, an endless genealogy, a tradition? Um, for instance, is having the Lord's Supper each time we assemble something that's essential or an opinion? Is it essential that our sign out the front says Church of Christ, or is that optional? Now, we may have opinions. They may even be right, right? They may be essential. We may each have our view, our understanding on both of those questions, okay? So I'm not delving into that, but I'm more prompting us to try and think, how did we make that decision about what is essential and what is optional or um, um, tradition. And, and so I, that, that's a really important conversation for us to have. How do we make those decisions? 
as we process this teaching of 1 Timothy in chapter 1, it seems to me that Paul is saying something like this. He's saying that there is a core gospel. And, and the core gospel is Jesus. Right? Let's start there. The core gospel is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the center of our faith. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. Okay? There are an innumerable number of topics that we can argue about. Should we, have, should we sit in pews, in rows, or should we sit in a circle? Okay? Um, there's nothing in the Bible that's going to answer that question for us. But if we put the chairs in a circle, there'll be some people that'll leave next week and not come back. Right? Maybe it's because you can't hear. Maybe it's because you don't like it. Maybe because you just feel it's not proper. And, and so, but, but, but we can disagree about all of that. But we can't disagree about Jesus. Jesus is at the core of the gospel. He is the Son of God. We must agree that through Jesus we can all receive love, grace, mercy, faith, hope, forgiveness, the things that Paul points to here in this first chapter of Timothy. This is what he wants to point people towards. Now that's the core of our faith. And, and then I want to say that there's consequences of that. Because when we accept that core gospel, then we enter into the kingdom. And there's a way that we live in the kingdom. Jesus was able to say the first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your being. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor, right? He's going to say, people are going to know that you're my disciples by the way that you one another. And then in perhaps his most radical teaching, he says that you should love your enemies. Right? This is what it means to live in the kingdom. It's to love God, neighbor, one another, enemies. That's the um, goal of the command. Right? But, but even that isn't the core gospel. You can't say this is what's required and take Jesus out of the equation. Right? And take Jesus' love, take Jesus' grace, take Jesus' mercy out of the picture. It only makes sense. To, to have this um, life in the kingdom if you acknowledge the king. That is Christ, king, Messiah, Jesus. And then, so, so this is what it means to live in the kingdom, then there are the ethics of the kingdom. Then we get to the boundaries of the kingdom and we come to these thou shalt nots. And again, if we put the thou shalt nots or the love of one another's up the top, what we're essentially saying is that if I'm good enough, if we make that the gospel, if I'm good enough, I can work, I can earn my way into heaven. And so we have to have this sequence. And I think Paul is laying it out here because he's saying there may be controversies right, about how some of these things are implemented. Can we have somebody in our fellowship on a Sunday morning who just sold somebody a lemon of a car on the, during the week and feels quite good about it, okay? They even tithed. 
the money that they made on the sale of that car. They knew it was a lemon and they got rid of it and they were just glad to get it off the lot. And then they came to church and they tithed their money and, 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 and there's somebody out there that's so upset with them because the car didn't even make it two miles down the road. And there's no refund. I'm sorry, buyer beware. Right? And that person is here and, and, and we're going to say, there's going to be some people say, no, that person shouldn't be welcomed. They're a thief. They should not be welcomed in our fellowship on Sunday morning. And there's other people who go, oh, look, we all do things. Right? And, and so there are things there that we can say stealing is wrong. But what do we do about it? How do we handle it? How do we treat it? There's going to be a lot of disagreements on that. And that's the ethics of the kingdom. But we can't disagree on who Jesus is. We can't disagree on showing love and grace and mercy, on, on building up faith, of, of living out our hope, of the forgiveness that we've received from God. That is non-negotiable. And so we have these things that are um, different, different levels of teachings, if you will. And that's not to say that any of them are unimportant. We should be striving to understand them. We should be striving to live in all aspects of our life the way that God wants us to. But notice how those positive commands, those life in the kingdom, they're not detailed, are they? They're, not, they're, they're just, oh yeah, love your neighbor. You'll figure it out. <laughs> right? You, you know, no, you don't understand how laws work, Jesus. We need, we need some explanation. <laughs> what about this neighbor who, yeah, just love him. What, what about when my neighbor, yeah, just, just love. <laughs> you know, like we're, we want all this clarification. Jesus just says, no, this is the positive command I'm giving you. Just go out and be my people. But there's these ethics to the kingdom. Again, they're not as detailed as we'd like them to be, right? But we still try and live lives that honor God, that avoid sin. And so because we're forgiven, because we're living in God's kingdom, will turn away from sin. And that is where the ongoing process of God's Spirit transforms us into God's image. So this week, I'd like for us to attempt an exercise to focus uh, on these aspects of our relationship with God that I've described here as the core gospel. I've printed up some sheets that are downstairs that you can grab on the way out. And uh, they look like this. I'm going to put it up on the, the screen here as well. It's just, uh, you'll see the sheet. I have a typo. It says 1 Timothy 12, verses 1 to 17, instead of 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 17. So I know somebody will come back and let me know about it. Um, and so what I'd like us to do this week is just to take this, this sheet. It's a simple exercise. We're going to personalize these verses. We simply fill in the blank. I thank our Lord Jesus, the anointed, who empowers me because he saw me as faithful and appointed me to this ministry. And I, I, I just want to say, pause there and say, for some of us, that might be what we need this week. Right? That, that might be it. You may just have to digest that and say, does God really see me this way? And, and, but then we, if that's not, we, do, we keep going here. Even though I was once, and I want you to fill in that blank, okay? Paul says a, a whole list of things that he was. And, and I'd like us to say, who were we before we met Jesus? 
he was still merciful to me. He poured his... I want you to think what that is for you, right? You can look it up and see what word Paul uses, but, but think about yourself. What word am I going to use? What did, what, what did Christ pour onto me to change me from who I was? And, and, and he poured his something over me, and I was flooded in an abundance of the grace and faith and love that can only be found in Jesus the anointed Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that's just the first paragraph. There's another paragraph on, on the sheet. And, and so I encourage you to take it, fill in those, those blanks, uh, and, and do it today or tomorrow. Do it today or tomorrow. And then each day this week, would you just pray that sheet? Because he starts out and says, I thank our Lord Jesus. And so you can just say, thank you. Lord Jesus Christ, who empowers me. And, and just continue down like that. And make this a daily prayer just for a week. As we focus on the core of the gospel, on who Jesus is, on the grace, the mercy, the love, the hope, the forgiveness that we've received from him. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All righty. We're about to commune this morning.